Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We're not going to cover all this tonight. I'll tell you that right now. It might be three weeks that we're in this section, but we'll be at least looking at it as we do our study tonight. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, like I said at the beginning, we're not going to be able to cover even half of this stuff tonight. But let's just start digging in right in verse one. What's the first word of verse one? What have we learned already then when, when, when we need to go back? Because if he says, therefore, what he's about to say is tied to what he's previously said. And I know it's been a month since we've been together and you probably haven't read your Bibles in a whole month. <laughs> that was a joke. I know better. Go back with me to Philippians chapter three and look at verses 17 through 21. Paul says, brothers, and again, this word brothers could be translated brothers and sisters. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their, they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, with all that understood, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, this term in the Lord, we're going to hopefully, if time permits, begin to break down tonight. You're going to see it throughout this section in, in, in great detail. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. So ignore the in the Lord part for right now. Let's just deal with the fact of the, that Paul is just challenging them to, as he says, to stand firm in the Lord and to follow. In, in other words, follow his example and the example of the others who have lived as he has in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Those who have not lived for this life, but have been living for the life to come. In other words, and we're going to get into this, like I said, in a little bit more detail, in a little bit of time. In this life that we live in, in this world that we live in, that is pulling, away, pulling us away from the Lord, in our flesh that is trying to pull us away from a close walk with the Lord, we need to understand that there's a battle going on and we need to stand firm. And he says, if it helps, look at how I'm living and look at how some of these other people that are around me are living. And their focus is not on this life, but on the life to come. And so just keep that in mind as we're going to break that down in more detail and then he goes on and he says in verse two, and he pleads with Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Again, more on the in the Lord in a little bit. What their disagreement was isn't even known. But what I want to do tonight is I want to focus for a little while on Paul's pleading or entreating them. You see, Paul was an apostle. Paul was a capital A apostle. 
He had been given authority by God and as a leader in the church. And he could have easily commanded them to behave themselves. But instead of ordering them to behave themselves and to agree, whatever their disagreement was, he pleads with them, he entreats them, he begs them. And I want to kind of lay some time, uh, take some time tonight to lay out from the scriptures for you that this not only is how leadership should be, it also is a wonderful example of who Jesus really is and who God is. So go with me, put a bookmark here and go with me to Philemon chapter one. There is no chapter two, but I'll just go to Philemon verse, chapter one. Look at verses eight through twenty two. We'll see another example of Paul using this type of a of a pleading. He did not exercise his apostolic authority. He did not command them. He just pled with them. He entreated them. If you're not sure where Philemon is, it's really easy. It's right in front of the book of Hebrews. Right in front of the book of Hebrews. Look at verses 8 through 22. Now let me catch you up with what's going on. Uh, there is this man, Philemon, and uh, he had had a slave named Onesimus. And the slave ran away. And in his running away, he ends up meeting Paul. Comes to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry, and they become really, really close. And Paul says to Onesimus, you need to go back. The thing that God would have you do is go back to your owner, Philemon, and submit yourself to him. What you did was wrong. And now Paul sends with Onesimus this letter and says, I want you to take him back, and I want you to treat him as a brother. Now, let's go to how he does it, though, in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man now and a prisoner for, also for Christ Jesus. Quick commercial. The same time that he wrote the letter to Phi, the book of Philipp, the group the church in Philippi is the same time he wrote the, the letter to Philemon. He's in that same imprisonment. Uh, who's, uh, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Look at how he writes to Philemon. He says, look, I could command you. I have that authority from God. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to beg you. I'm going to plead with you. Because I want your response not to be under compulsion, not because I commanded you, but because you chose to do it out of the will of your own heart. Now, you're going to see this all the way through Scripture. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 4. This is what godly leadership is. It's not a heavy-handed type of thing. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 4. 
Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, this is the leaders in the church, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All right. Now, here's what I want you to see. He says to the, the elders and the pastors and the leaders in that, those, that church, he says, look, I want you to lead God's flock. First of all, not because you're being forced to, but because you're willing to, because you desire to. And I don't want you lording your authority over them or domineering them. I want you to be an example to them. Let me show you another place. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Paul's writing to the church there in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace also. Jump, uh, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. As he's talking to this church, he's saying, look, I want you to continue what you had promised to do in your giving. Let me tell you about the Macedonian churches. They were in extreme poverty, but they, out of their own willingness of their heart, gave even beyond their means. And I'm just sharing this with you so that your attitude will match theirs. I'm not commanding you to give. See, many of us have been taught that you better give and you better tithe and you better. The scripture doesn't teach it to be a command and an obedience thing or else you're in trouble. The Bible all the way through has said, well, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at one verse there. Verse 7, it'll make it real clear. Check 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All through scripture... Godly leadership is a leadership that teaches the truth of the word, pleads with people and challenges people, but leaves the results to who? To God. I wrote in my notes here, wouldn't it be wonderful if in our churches we had congregations who voluntarily, that's on their own will, submitted willingly to their pastor's authority. And pastors who chose to encourage and entreat obedience and didn't force it or use a heavy hand. Wouldn't that be a neat thing if the attitude of the congregation was God has given us leaders for a reason and we're going to follow them and we're going to trust them. Amen. And wouldn't it be cool if the leaders actually had that same big view of God and didn't feel like it was their job to make people do what they're supposed to do. Wouldn't that be an amazing church? By the way, those of you in your families, hopefully you understand this. You parents could easily use your authority and domineer and force obedience in your children. Where will that end up eventually leading you? Rebellion. 
eventually there's going to come a point where the kids say, oh, yeah, let me show you how much control you have over me. And this problem is, is a lot of parents have never learned the godly type of leadership. And folks, all of this pointing is pointing to who? It's pointing to God himself. It's pointing to Christ. I'm not going to take the time to, to, to have you go back and look at because we want to keep moving tonight. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and following, it says, Paul says, respect those who are over you in the Lord and hold them in high regard because of their work, because of the position God's given them. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, obey your leaders. And I'm going to paraphrase it. And don't give them a hard time because they really won't be of any benefit to you. But in our churches, in our mindset, because of our flesh, and we have never learned how to really, and we're going to get there hopefully tonight, we, we, we've never really learned how to live in the Lord. Because of that, we in our flesh don't want any authority. We Baptists especially like our priesthood of the believer. We like that everybody gets an equal say. And there is a model here in Scripture of authority. Paul could have easily commanded Euodia and Syntyche. He could have actually said, don't make me come down there. You say, well, did he ever do that? Yeah, go to 1 Corinthians 5. Let me show you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a serious problem going on in that church where a man actually was having a sexual relationship with his, his father's wife. It wasn't his mother, but it was the lady that his father was married to. And this guy was having a sexual relationship with her in the church there. And everybody knew about it and nobody had a problem with it. Yeah, maybe your church doesn't look so bad after all, does it? Look, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then he goes on and says, hey, guys, don't you realize a little bit of sin leavens the whole lump? All right. Now, here's the thing I want you to grasp about this. Paul makes a statement here. He says, I'm not actually there, but I'm, I'm there in spirit. And if you want my vote in the authority that I've been given, I've already pronounced judgment. Here's what you need to do. You need to kick this guy out of your fellowship until he gets this taken care of. You're going to see in a little bit what they're talking about. It says, hand him over to Satan. I'll explain that in just a bit. So stick with me. A lot of you love to quote where two or more are gathered. You ever heard people say the Lord is. is well, first of all, let me ask you a question, because we always use it this way. Oh, there are two more gathered. The Lord's here. And I've heard people in churches, wherever I go, the worship leaders will get up and say, oh, we're going to have a good day of worship because the Bible says we're two or more gathered. The Lord's here. And I want to jump up and say, if I was here by myself, would the Lord not be here? <laughs> I want so bad to jump up and say, if it was just me, I'll tell you what, if I left the room too, would he not be in this place? That's not what that passage is talking about. If you actually go back and look at the context we love to take a verse out of context. The context of that passage where it says two or more are gathered, it's actually in the context of Matthew 18 where he says, if you've got a problem with your brother, you go see your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, you bring somebody with you. If they don't, then you bring him before the church. And where two or more are gathered, the Lord's in it. In other words, if there are some people that are sensing this is what God is saying and they're godly folks, God's there too. We love to quote things totally out of context. Paul's just saying the same thing. He says, look, 
I'm in agreement with you. Listen to what I'm saying here. Here's what my apostolic authority says needs to be done. So there are going to be times that the dad needs to pull out the dad card. But if you pull out the dad card every single time, have you taught the kids how to respond to the Spirit of God under their own volition? Or have you taught them how to just follow rules? And Josh McDowell said years ago really, really well, rules without relationship will equal rebellion every single time. Not only that, I'm going to ask you a couple questions real quick. Does God force himself on us? No. Does he give us commands? Yes. Does he force us to obey them? Does he plead with us? Oh, yes. He's loving. He's patient. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. We all know the Bible says love is patient and love is kind. Listen closely to one of the descriptions of love. Love does not insist on its own way. Did you catch that? If love does not insist on its own way, and God is love, God does not insist on his own way. He lets us choose. Isn't that what the father in the prodigal son story did? By the way, you do understand that the father in the prodigal son is a story representing God. And the young son came to his father and says, you're as good as dead to me. That's what he said. He said, I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. You're dead to me now. Give me my inheritance now. Let's be honest. If your child came to you and said, I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. Give me your inher my inheritance now. What would you have said? You'd say over my dead body, right? I ain't doing that. But the father in this story who is God gives it to him. He says, you want to go? Go. No one's forcing you. Isn't that what Jesus said when in John chapter 6, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the scripture says, upon hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they went away. Jesus turned to the 12 and said, you're free to go too. Nobody's holding you here. He lets us choose. Oh, by the way, what was the father doing when he told his son, here's the money, go do with it as you wish? He was, listen, he was handing him over to Satan. You say, why would a father do that? Listen closely, folks. If you are in Christ, your eternal destiny is already set. You're going to heaven because of the gift of God, and it's irrevocable. But between when we get saved and when we get to heaven, God lovingly, continually pleads with us to listen to him. He doesn't stop. Love is patient. And he continually says, and he pursues us and says, I want you to listen to me. What I have for you is better than what your flesh is telling you you want right now. But if we choose to continue to disobey, sometimes it has to, well, let me give you an example. Some of you heard me give you this example before. When you were baking something, ladies, and, and your kids were little, and you know, and you have something on in the oven, that glass on the front of the oven starts to get a little hot, doesn't it? And your kid would walk up and try to touch it. And you push their hand away and say, honey, don't touch that. That'll burn you. And if the kid reached up again, you'd push their hand away and say, honey, don't touch it. It'll burn you. If they continue to reach up, you might even slap their hand a little bit and say, no, don't do that. But if they continued to want to touch it, what did you eventually have to do? You'd have to let them touch it. The only way you're going to learn. What does the Bible say Satan is right now doing? He's roaring, roaming around like a roaring lion Seeking whom he may devour. God continually through his spirit within us as his children says, don't look at that. Don't do that. Stop telling that joke. 
all these different things. And if we continue to walk in disobedience, sometimes he says, you want to go play with him? Go get your fill. Go get your fill. And when you realize that it's not going to be everything you thought it was going to be, we'll be here. And you come on back. God does not force himself on us. But he'll never give up on you either. He will never, ever give up on you. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim. Isn't there a passage somewhere in the Bible that talks about don't make me put a bit in your mouth? Well, let me show you that passage. Go to Psalm 32. Let me teach you how to read and study the scripture. In Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Is this passage saying that if you don't listen, I'm going to put a bit in your mouth? Doesn't say that, does it? All it's saying is, don't be like those kind of animals that you have to put a bit in their mouth to get them to turn around. What did Jesus say when he stood over Jerusalem, when he rode in on the donkey and he wept when he finally got to Jerusalem and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had let me. I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Now you're going to have to deal with the consequences for your choices. See, that's something else about God. Um, God. If you choose to continually ignore his entreating, his pleading, he will not shield you from the consequences of your choices. You want to go run with Satan? Go get your fill. Once you realize it's not all that you thought it was going to be, I'll be here. Ready to run in your direction. By the way, the only time in the Bible you ever see God run is in that story in the prodigal son. The father got up and ran toward him. I don't know if you've let that sink in. God running towards you. That's enough to just spend a whole night on just that. I wrote in my notes, but because of his great love for us, he continues to pursue us. He continues to entreat us. He waits patiently for his prodigal children to come to their senses so he can run to us. Folks, going back to that illustration of the church where the people voluntarily submit to their leader's authority, and they don't rest, buck against it and, well, I want it my own way or I don't agree. I don't trust that guy. Let me just say, and also in the same way for pastors who think they have to force obedience. All it's doing is showing your true view of God. All you're doing is showing your true view of God. Because if you're in the congregation and you say, I don't trust them, I don't agree with that. Uh, you're actually saying God is not able to take care of those who are in authority. Doesn't the Bible say in, first, in James chapter 3, verse 1, don't all y'all seek to be leaders and teachers? Because those of us who have this role, this position, what? Will be held in higher accountability before God. Paul even says in that passage when he deals with that church in Corinth, they had some people that were suing each other and taking each other to court. He makes this statement. He goes, why can't you even let yourself be wronged? Why do you have to win the case? Do we really trust that God will take care of the situation or do we think we have to get our way when we think we have to get our way or we don't think that anybody's going to deal with this and nobody knows what he's really done. And if anybody really knew, God knows. God knows. I'm going to say to you, 
Why can't you be wronged? I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to plead with you to submit to the authority in your church. What if they're wrong, Jim? That's something God's going to deal with, right? Vengeance is whose? Who's going to repay? Oh, anybody in leadership? Don't think that you have to force your authority to get them to follow you or else they won't. So if they don't follow you, it's all right. We haven't been listening to God for years. Who thinks they're going to listen to you? I've been honestly, I wish I could look you in the eye and say, I have done everything God's ever said. <laughs> no. My flesh rebels against him on a daily basis. So does yours. Why do we all think? Oh, it used to be years ago when I was in pastor, I, I used to, I take it personally if people didn't trust me. One time I was in Chicago and we were looking to hire a youth pastor and I knew this is the one that God had chosen. And I'm meeting with the committee. Don't get me started. <laughs> the committee that had been put together to find the new youth guy and I was already sure that this is the one that God had chosen and so I was sitting in this room meeting with the committee and trying to convince them that this is the one and they were questioning they were resisting they weren't we weren't seeing it like I saw it and I, as a young preacher I looked at this one lady Betty and I made this statement because she was one of my hardest ones resisting against me I said Betty don't you trust me and I thank God for Betty because God spoke to her that day. She looked me in the eye and she says, no, Jim, I don't. But I trust God. And I'm going to listen to what you're saying, not because I think you're wise. But because if this isn't right, God will take care of it. When the meeting was over, I went up to her and I can't wait to hug her this weekend because I'm going to see her this weekend. I thank God for that lady who redirected a young preacher who thought, you just have to do what I say. I can't wait to hug her again and say thank you, thank you, thank you for speaking truth into my life. Everybody in the room gasped when she said what she said, but it was one of the most loving things that had ever been said to me. Because it helped remind me, I need to keep my eyes on God, they need to keep their eyes on God, and we'll be fine. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 4, and let's start digging in to this in the Lord thing with the time that we have left for tonight. And we'll continue it some more next week. In verse 1, Paul says that they are to stand firm in the Lord. Now, in verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Look at verse 4. He tells all of us to rejoice in the Lord. Now, actually, Paul started using this phrase in Philippians 3.1. Go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He'd been telling them to rejoice, but in verse, chapter 3, verse 1 is the first time we see this phrase, in the Lord, start to come out. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Oh, and by the way, this isn't hypothetical. I can prove to you it's not hypothetical. Go to chapter 4, verse 10. It's not even theoretical. It's, it's real. It's practical. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've renewed your, your concern for me. So this in the Lord is very important. We've got to understand what this in the Lord thing means. And folks, let me just tell you, my only prayer is that the Spirit of God will help you grasp this because it is deep and actually very hard to put into words. 
But for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have the Spirit of God within us, He will give us the understanding that we need. I'm just going to let the broken way that I communicate sometimes just be used of Him tonight. But one thing, as we start to look at this, I can tell you that the Bible says at least there are three things we know about being in the Lord. We can stand firm in the Lord, we can agree in the Lord, and we can rejoice in the Lord. So what does that mean? Maybe, how will that help us find out what this means? If you're going to look closely at this, though, you'll notice that all of these commands are tied to or ask us to give a supernatural response to either a negative situation or one our flesh does not want to see as positive. Let me read that to you again. Hopefully that sinks in. If you look closely, you'll notice that all of these commands, the stand firm in the Lord and agree in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord, are asking us to give a supernatural response to either a negative situation or one that our flesh does not want to see as positive. All right, you with me so far? All of these responses, all of these in the Lord things are tied to things that we don't see as good. All right. Paul told them to stand firm in the face of opposition from the world in which we'll be pulled constantly live for now and for self and not for the life to come. In this case, standing firm in the Lord is receiving God's grace and power to stand firm when otherwise we couldn't. I'm going to say it to you again. In this case, standing firm in the Lord is receiving God's grace to be able to stand firm in the face of strong opposition when otherwise we couldn't. This is beyond you, okay? This is something that you could not do. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, what does he say? Stand firm in the Lord and in His mighty power. But I'm going to give you a wonderful example of it. Go to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to read the whole chapter for you because as I tried to break it down, there's just no real good place to do so. The whole story and the whole illustration is just too good. And I don't know how many of us have actually gone and taken the time to really look at this passage in a long time because it's one of the one stories we kind of know. And when we kind of know them, we don't usually dig into them very much. In Exodus chapter 14, look at verses 1 through 31. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharahoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So, how did they end up at the Red Sea? Trapped? God told them to turn back around and end up there. God said, I want you to kind of backtrack a little bit and go right here into this little corner where you got nowhere to go. Okay. <clears throat> when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he had made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord handed, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
The Egyptians pursued them all, Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharahoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken away, us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, listen, fear not. What's that next word? Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. That's a bold statement. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Stop right there. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Folks, this is a big key for us understanding what it really means to stand firm in the Lord. When we stand firm in the Lord, it is not us hanging on until our knuckles are white, but it is us being obedient to what God has said Trusting that what God has said he will do, he will do. And we trust that God will give us the ability even to stand firm. When you stand firm in the Lord against the flesh and against the devil and against this world and against all that's pulling you away, you are not in your own strength trying to defeat Satan. You can't. That's why we've already seen in our study of Ephesians, we're to put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Whose armor is it? Who's doing the fighting? It's God. And here he says, all you're going to have to do is to be silent and God will fight for you. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. <laughs> God forwards water. Uh, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the harps of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, check this out, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. In other words, it gave light to the Israelites who were passing through the water and darkness to the Egyptians who were behind. Folks, I don't know if that's sunk into you yet or not. But something started to happen where while they are fleeing the Egyptians, they don't even see them anymore. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced what it means to be in the Lord. We're all in Christ, but how many of us take advantage of it? It's a daily thing that we have to lay our flesh on the altar and not respond to how we think our flesh wants to react. But we need to know what God has said and we need to walk in obedience, trusting him. And folks, a lot of times it looks stupid. I know when I left the pastor in Atlantic going to this traveling ministry that it looked stupid. And I even had family members who would come and say, are you sure? And all I could say was, I know what God has said and I'm to do what he said. And it looks crazy, but God in his awesomeness started to provide. And he did so many miracles at the beginning. These same family members came and said, wow, it's obvious that that's what God wanted. And then after I left, some things started happening in the Atlantic that weren't real pleasing and a little saddening. And family members came back and said, are you sure you're supposed to do it? The same ones who said, hey, we know it's of God now because we've seen his miracle. Now, we keep looking at the wrong thing. 
God supernaturally comes behind them and gets between them and the Egyptians so that while they're walking and doing what he's told them to do, they can't even see the Egyptians anymore. That is part of what will happen. He will give you a supernatural ability to stand firm while all of a sudden, even though the circumstances haven't changed. Well, how does it say in Philippians chapter four? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen? The peace of God that transcends, passes understanding, will all of a sudden guard your hearts and your mind. It doesn't make any sense to you because the Egyptians are still bearing down, but we're good. Why are you going to pay the bill? I don't know. The doctor says you still have cancer. That's okay. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know this much. I'm going to be fine because I'm right now. God's given me something that I can't even explain to you. And folks, let me just tell you, I hurt for most Christians as I was there for a long time myself. Most Christians have never learned how to move into that realm of being in the Lord. Resting. You have to know what he's promised. You have to know what he said. And you have to look at that and you seek him and he will give you an ability. Well, let's keep reading. Go to the next verse. Go to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall on their right and right hand on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after him into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch in the pillar of fire, and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Even they realized they weren't doing it. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. For how long? Until the next situation arose. And folks, we can't beat them up. Aren't we just as guilty? Don't we have short memories? Of all the things the Lord has done for us. Aren't we just like the Egyptians at the end of the 40, I'm sorry, the Israelites at the end of the 40 years, God had to remind them that all these 40 years, your feet never swelled and your clothing never wore out. I've been supernaturally taking care of you this whole time and you've been panicking and sweating and fearing. Folks, let me just tell you, you want to stand firm in the Lord? Oh, let me, let me give you a little commercial for what's coming up in, in the life to come. Uh, things are going to get worse on the earth. Like I told the men at Men in Motion, I don't know if it's going to be called Ebola or whatever it is. There's going to be a lot of other stuff that's going to keep coming. Read your Bibles. There's going to be work. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be wild animals. There's, I mean, the Bible says it's, it's still coming. We're in the last of the last days. And folks, it's not going to get better. I was preaching a prophecy conference in Jacksonville. And 
This one guy comes up to me afterwards, and I had been laying out for them the literal millennial kingdom that is still to come, the seven-year tribulation period, the actual literal millennial kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. This one guy comes up afterwards, and he's anomalous, and he, he said, I don't see that thousand years as a literal thousand years. I just see it as the end of the church time period, and I think Satan's bound already. <laughs> now, I'll be honest with you, I had a hard time not laughing. And I said, uh, it says here in Revelation that he will be bound so that he's not able to deceive the nations anymore for that thousand year time period. Um, first of all, I don't see him as being bound. Second of all, could you at least agree that he's still deceiving people today? Well, yeah. Well, then what does this mean? Folks, it's going to get worse and worse. But take heart. Jesus said in this world, you'll have trouble. Oh, by the way, if you haven't signed up for the cruise, hurry up, because we're going to be spending a whole seven hours on chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 of John. And the whole theme is, let not your hearts be troubled. That's what we're going to be looking at. Jesus' intense teaching on the abiding relationship and all that, that he did in those short time period right before the cross. And how he said over and over, let not your hearts be troubled. We're going to be studying how things are going to get wild and crazy. But we who are in Christ, who know how to rest in him, who know what it means to abide, are going to be filled supernaturally with the power to, to be able to shine. As I preached to the guys that met in motion today, how Paul stood right before the shipwreck and said to them twice, take heart, take heart. We're going to be all right. How do you know, Paul? Because God has said. Folks, it's time that in our churches, Christians begin to, in the Lord, stand firm so that you can be an encouragement to those around you who are saying, oh, the economy, all this, all that. Folks, is the economy bad? Sure. Is it going to get worse? Yes. But does the economy affect the Lord? It has no effect on God's bank account. We've got to stop looking at things with our eyes. We've got to stop looking at the Egyptians. But all he sees is the Egyptians. Well, then you need to learn how to seek the Lord. Well, again, he gives us a glimpse. Go back to Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord. We're going to get to that in just a second. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. Let your reasonless be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't stop reading. Finally, brothers. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where should our focus be? It should be on the positive things, not on the negative things. Are there going to be negative things? Yes. But we're to be looking at who God is and the fact that he's still in control and there's still a lot of awesome things going on. And if I don't keep moving, I won't be able to tell you the cool story that I want to tell you at the end of tonight. <laughs> he also says not only that they are to stand firm in the Lord, they are to agree in the Lord. Whatever their disagreement, if you've ever had one, you know how hard it is for your flesh to give in and reconcile, right? Let's be honest. <laughs> I know one of my struggles is to say that I was wrong. And as soon as I am wrong, I'm probably going to be willing to admit it. But it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> I thought, sure, I'd have an amen from Becky on that one right there. <clears throat> Is that not one of the hardest things for us to do? 
when we're in a disagreement with someone, to be willing to humble ourselves and to take the servant road, if you will? Especially men. Especially men. He says to them, agree in the Lord. And again, being in the Lord is what? It's receiving a supernatural grace that gives you the ability to do something that you otherwise could not do. All right? Now, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, you don't have to turn there. Paul puts it this way. He says, so I say, if you walk in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You want to be willing to agree in the Lord in a situation where you're supposed to reconcile? You can't do it until you learn how to let the Spirit of God have control in your life. And when you do, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You will be able to, in the Lord, agree with someone, even that's disagreeable. How does the book of Romans say, as far as it lies with you, live at peace with everyone? On your side, whether they listen or not, it's not the issue. On your side, you need to be the one who, by God's grace, goes and says, we don't want this to be an issue. It's over. Even if... You think you're right and they're wrong. Let them be right. What does it really matter? Are you living for this life or the life to come? You see, that, we don't realize it, but that living for this life creeps in all the time, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Is that, is that letting them be right or is that just opening that door to understand? It, it, all the above. All the above. Now, let's deal with something, though. Who's telling them to agree with each other? Well, yes, but who's he writing through? Paul ever have any disagreements with anybody? Paul and Barnabas had a big one, didn't they? We don't have time to go back there and look, but if you want to write, look at Acts 15, you'll see it. He and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. What right does Paul have to say to these women, you need to agree with each other in the Lord. And what right does he, as we've already seen earlier, say, I want you to follow my example? Well, this is where Bible study comes in. You see, if you don't know how to study the Bible, you're going to make assumptions that are going to be incorrect. Paul and Barmas had their dispute around 49 A.D. Okay? This book of Philippians was written around 62 A.D., all right? So it's been 13 years since their dispute when he's telling them to agree with each other in the Lord. Let me show you something Paul wrote about Barnabas in 55 A.D. between their disagreement and when he's telling them now to agree in the Lord. Go to 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verses 1 through 6. As Paul is dealing with this church questioning his apostolic authority, he makes a few statements, and he actually mentions his buddy Barnabas. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I'm to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Do you see it? He's actually speaking about Barnabas in a positive light. This is in 55 A.D. when this letter was written around there, 55, 56 A.D. 
I think as you do a study of this and then you look at his writing about John Mark and how he's actually said he's helpful to me in the ministry at the end of his life, you'd find out that actually Paul has already applied what he's telling Yodia and Syntyche to do. He's already reconciled with Barnabas. If you were still in a sharp disagreement with somebody and you thought they were dirt and you didn't want to talk to them anymore, and I'm not even going to mention their name, you would not write about Barnabas in the positive way in which you wrote about him as you wrote to the church here. He puts Barnabas on the same level as him. Oh, and by the way, for those of you that uh, um, have a real issue, because I for years have had people say, well, you know, in Acts chapter 1, when they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias, they shouldn't have never done that because Paul's supposed to be the 12th apostle. Uh, it's been taught a lot. You guys getting all hung up on trying to figure things out. That, guess what? He here, he says Barnabas is an apostle. Doesn't he? He's listing Barnabas as one of the apostles. We got 13 now. And Matthias makes 14. Don't worry about it. When we get to heaven and they're all the different gates and they represent the apostles, we'll know which one number 12 is. I think it's Matthias. God's got it. Exactly. But we get too much in our math and we got to we prove everybody. Guys, stop arguing about stuff like that that the Bible hadn't spoke about. Disputable matters. Don't don't mess with that stuff. So at this point, I believe without question, Paul has already reconciled with Barnabas. And so he's able to write and say, copy my, my leadership. Paul then says, as we back in chapter four, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. Oh, and by the way, uh, how often? Always. Remember, this is a positive reaction to a negative occurrence. Write these scriptures down and you can go back and look at them on your own. We're not going to take the time to go there. But in James chapter one, verses two through four, Paul, uh, James says it this way. He says, uh, count it all joy, my brothers. When you face trials of different kinds. Why? Because you know that the working of your faith is going to produce righteousness and perseverance. He says, see trials as a good thing. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. You can see you got trials. My brother, count it as, count it as joy. God's got a reason for it. And he's going to do something in it through you. And that means you ain't dead yet because he's got work left to do in Chris, isn't it? There you go. Oh, he also says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, that we stand firm in our relationship. We've already been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And we also can rejoice in our sufferings. We can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we already know that we're at peace with God through our justification. We're in a grace of which we can stand. We can boldly go before his throne. So this suffering has nothing to do with God punishing me. It's something he's using to make me more like him. I'm going to rejoice in the trial. Acts chapter 16. Remember this guy, Paul, when did he meet these people in Philippi? Does anybody remember how he met them? Remember, he tried to go into Asia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. He tried to go into Mysia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. And then there's the dream of the man of Macedonia saying, come and preach the gospel to us. And he goes there looking for where God's at work. He sees some women down by the river at a place of prayer. And he starts and he preaches the gospel to them. And Lydia becomes the first convert in Europe. And, and she says, hey, if you believe me, it'll be a believer in the Lord. Would the church start in my house? And it does. And oh, by the way, Yordi and Syntyche might have been some of those women that were there at that first time he met them down by the river, down by the water. 
So they build the church. The church starts to begin there in her house. And as God's doing this stuff, as they were going to the place of prayer one day, these girls who had these demons in them and they were predicting the future. Paul had had enough and he turns around and he casts the demons out of these girls. And the owners of the girls had now lost their income because of this. And they get mad and they grab Paul and Silas and they have them arrested and beaten. They throw them in the inner cell. By the way, does anybody know what Paul and Silas are doing at midnight in that jail? They're praising God. Was there something in their bread and water? That just sounds crazy. Oh, no. Paul had learned. Whatever I'm going through, I've already been made right with my father and I'm at peace with God. He is not mad at me. He is not punishing me. He has a purpose and I am going to rejoice in this. And they were praising God and singing hymns. We'll get to that when we get to Colossians, the importance of learning how to worship like that. Is this response of Paul singing at midnight a natural or a supernatural response? Supernatural. Then how then do we produce a supernatural response? You don't. He does. And like I touched on already, we're going to dive into it more next week. We need to learn how to, what does it really mean to say not to be anxious about anything? Well, by the way, I'm going to show you next week that actually that means that we're going to be anxious. It's not saying don't ever be anxious. It's saying when that anxiety builds, here's how you deal with it. Don't let the scripture fool you into thinking that it's saying don't ever be anxious. That's not what it's saying. It's saying when the anxiety begins, and you'll learn to recognize when that happens. I'm anxious to see what the Lord's going to do now. Exactly, exactly. Um, I told you that my daughter, uh, on this last trip, uh, as I was finishing preaching revival in Gainesville, was going to be meeting me in Gainesville at my in-law's place where I was sleeping that week. And she called and she said, Dad, Aunt Julie just had her baby today. Mikey's sister, Julie, has had their sixth baby. And they live in Tallahassee. And Elise has been dying for this baby to be born. But it wouldn't come out and wouldn't come out and wouldn't come out. And then the day that she's supposed to leave Tallahassee, the baby's born. And she was going to skip her classes to go see the baby. And mom and dad said, oh, oh, oh. So she decided that what she was going to do is not come to the house and meet me. And then the two of us would ride to the church where I'd preach. And then we'd go to Orlando. But she was going to just meet me at the church. And so we started making a change of plans. And OK, we'll just leave your car at the church. That's actually a better thing because it's right by I-75 because the church was just off of I-75 in Gainesville. And, and, and I thought, you know what, that's actually no, it's OK. You can just meet me at the church. We'll leave your car there and then we'll go. And then when I bring you back, you can pick up your car and just zip right on back to Tallahassee. That's OK. Change of plans is OK. We're good. She shows up about 10 minutes into the service and we go through the whole service, and when it's all over, we're packing everything up and saying goodbye to the folks because it's been an awesome week, and I'm packing up my book table, and they're giving me my honorarium check, and all these things are happening. And Lisa's saying, Dad, I'm starving. I said, I promise I'll get you some dinner. Don't worry, I'll feed you. We get out in the parking lot, and it's night, it's dark, and her taillights are on. I was like, Elise, did you leave your lights on? She goes, I didn't. We go over, and we find out that there's a problem with her car where, you know, when you step on your brakes, the lights come on. and take your foot off the brake, the lights go out. Well, that little switch now is broke. And it, the car doesn't know that the foot's not on the brake anymore. And so we, we're figuring, <laughs> if we leave it here, the battery will be dead by the time we get back. But we don't have time to fix it. It's already dark. Repair shops are closed. Lord, what are we going to do? 
So we, we, we tried to, you know, well, maybe we'll just pull the fuse out, and that'll keep the lights from burning the battery out. But I don't know if you know this or not. You mechanics in the room learned, already know something I didn't know. You pull that fuse out, you can't put the car out of park. It's tied to telling the, the computer that you have to put your foot on the brake to be able to take it out of park. Well, it doesn't know your foot's on the brake now because the fuse is gone, and the car wouldn't move unless that thing's in. So I go back in, and I just said to the pastor, I said, here's our problem. As I'm telling him, there's a man there. He says, I'm a mechanic. Leave me the keys. Not only did we leave him the keys, we then drove away. And the whole time we were flown to Michigan, did the whole wedding thing and all. And by the way, it was cold. And we got back. We drove up to Gainesville. That car was sitting in the exact same spot that she had left it in. It was all fixed. And I said, how much? And he said, just get lost. <laughs> God just, it's like nothing had ever happened. It's so awesome when the body takes care of the body and God shows off. Oh, folks, let me just tell you, I could go on and on and tell you other stories. We've already had two other cars in the repair shop since then. But God has already miraculously and wonderfully taken care of it. He will get you through. Rejoice in the Lord in every situation. Learn how to rest in Him. We're going to dive into this more because I want to show you how it's all kind of tied together with him saying that they were his joy and his crown. We're going to get all that all tied together. There's so much more in this passage. But for tonight, my prayer is that we would individually begin this process of learning how to let the Christ that is within us take control. I want to pray that in this week to come that you will... Agree in the Lord if you need to. Stand firm in the Lord if you need to. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'm going to say it. See you next week.